All right. You ready to get into the Word of God today? So we're going to be finishing off our series that we've been going to today, which is exciting. Uh, we're going to be in John 17, which is the last part of this upper room meeting that we have been looking at week after week, uh, which is cool. So we're excited. I'm excited. We're going to land the plane today, and we're going to look at the Lord's Prayer. You know, this chapter, chapter 17 of, of John, uh, we could spend months in. We're not going to. This is going to be our last study today. And so we're not going to look at the entire chapter by any means. It's something I want to encourage you to look on your own. Uh, this prayer, if you look at your Bibles, starting in John 17, verse 1, going all the way to verse 26, the entire thing is Jesus's prayer. Jesus's prayer. There we go. Uh, it's his prayer. And, and you and I are able to get insight into the heart and desire of God himself, which is an exciting thing. Now, it is a, it can seem like a long prayer. We're like, man, a whole chapter. Uh, but usually, right, when we think chapters, sometimes we think of like multiple pages. Uh, no, this is like about half a page. Uh, if you can, you can note it down. Uh, this prayer of Jesus is somewhere about 650 words which you're like, oh my gosh, 650 words. If you were to read this prayer, it would take you approximately three and a half to four minutes. Is that a long prayer? Uh, yeah. Okay, if I was like, hey, I'm gonna, if I told you, hey, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go and I'm gonna spend some time praying. Is four minutes like this astronomically big number of time in a day? Okay. No, it's not, right? It's, it's relatively short. Think about how, about how many minutes are in a day. Anyone know? I think it's like 1,440 or something like that. Don't quote me. You can do the math, huh? Yeah, that sounds about right. And, and so this is about a four-minute prayer. And the disciples are hearing Jesus pray this. And I want to remind you, which I try to remind you often, and if you were with us on Wednesday, we got to talk about prayer. Prayer is not something that you have to do for a long period of time. Now, there are seasons and days and times and moments where, of course, that you want to pray longer. But, but you, if you pray something for five minutes and you mean it with all of your heart and you're genuine, opposed to praying something for five hours, God's not listening more to the five-hour prayer than to the five-minute prayer. Now, does this mean that you don't have to pray? You're like, oh, yeah, I prayed today because I prayed for 20 seconds. That's not what I'm saying. But you understand the concept where we think if I pray more, God would have heard me. No, he hears you anyway. He hears the, and he sees your heart and, and your genuineness. So last week, we took that in-depth look at John chapter 16, verse 33. Do you guys remember that? We had the whiteboard up here. You guys had those cards. So that was the very last verse in John chapter 16. And now he turns what he has been teaching from John 13 to John 16. He turns his teaching into his prayer. What Jesus has been teaching for these last few chapters, he now prays it over the disciples. I Meaning a lot of those things that we've been learning about, you can find in Jesus' prayer. There's a guy named Matthew Henry. He's an old Bible commentator, but uh, amazing, amazing uh, insight to the Bible. And he says this, Matthew Henry says, it was a prayer after a sermon, which he had spoken from God to them. So from, 
from these last few chapters we've been looking at in John, he's been speaking to them and they, he has been speaking God's word, but now he turned to speak to God for them. Do you see the difference? And so that's what we're going to look at today. Let's pray. God, we love you. And as we come to this very precious portion of scripture, and we just take a, just a surface level look at this prayer, we pray that you would teach us. We pray that you would, um, Lord, just remind us of your promises and, and, and Lord, that we would learn something today that we would be able to then go and apply to our life that would affect us in a day-to-day way. We pray your Holy Spirit will be present now. And we, so we look to you this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. And we all said? Amen. Amen. So some people have referred to this passage as the longest prayer. Uh, not because it's the longest prayer recorded in the Bible, but because it's the longest prayer recorded of Jesus. There are other times that we have Jesus' prayer, uh, but this was no doubt the longest one. But they also call it the longest prayer because of the reach that this prayer has. We're going to find out today that this prayer is still being fulfilled present day. 20 centuries later, this prayer is still being fulfilled. It's an amazing thing. So we're going to find that, that this chapter is completely connected to that verse we looked at last week. Do you remember it? You can look at verse 33 in your Bible. It says, these things I have said, spoken to you, that in me you may have peace, right? In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. And so directly connected to that, he ends that sentence. He ends that teaching. And then the Bible says in verse one, chapter 17, that after speaking these words, you see that? Look at verse one, chapter 17. He, he looks up to heaven. He says he lifted his eyes and he begins to pray, meaning that there is a connection between the two. Now, John 17 is known as the high priestly prayer of Jesus. Now, I, saw that, I know that sounds kind of intense. I'll explain it. But it, this is different than what we find in Matthew chapter 6. If you're with us on Wednesday, we took a moment and looked at uh, the Lord uh, or the model prayer. Some people call the model prayer the Lord's prayer. But in Matthew chapter six, that's where he teaches the disciples how to pray. This chapter is where he prays for the disciples, meaning you and I aren't supposed to take John 17 as a model to pray. Now, there are insights that we can get and we can learn about prayer, but you and I aren't to necessarily take John 17 and pray that for ourselves. It actually wouldn't make sense uh, as he, Jesus actually prays for himself in part of this prayer. And so it's not a model. It is a description. It is the prayer that he prayed over his disciples. Now, in scripture, there are a lot of different prayers that are prayed by great men of God that we have recorded. There's some amazing prayers of, of men like Nehemiah, men like Abraham, but this prayer trumps it all. This prayer gives us very insight into the heart of God because when someone prays, you are able to see, in what, see into their heart in a sense. You can see what they desire because prayer is something special, is it not? Prayer is something personal. And so you and I get a personal insight into God himself praying. You're like, how does God pray to God? Yeah, it's kind of a mind blower. Nonetheless, we get to see into the very heart of God today as we look at this. 
There is no other place that we can find such detailed understanding of what God wants for you. That in this prayer, you can find what God wants for you personally. It's an awesome thing. Now, I mentioned a second ago that this is known as the high priestly prayer of Jesus. Now, what does that mean? Does anyone know what the role of the high priest was in the Old Testament? Just think of him as kind of the main guy that God related to his people through. Like, like for, for us here, it's very different because now we, the Bible says that we are the temple of God. The Holy Spirit dwells in us. But imagine someone in a sense like Pastor Jack. He's the, the head of that. Uh, but, but even more so because it's, it was a lot different back then. Does anyone know who the first high priest was? Yeah. Aaron. Yeah. It was, anyone know who Aaron is? Someone else? Yeah. Yeah, it was Moses' bro, right? And, and he was the first high priest. And this was someone who, in a sense, he stood in the gap that existed between man and between God. That he had very specific tasks within temple sacrifices, which was the way that they worshiped God. Just like how you come to church now and you worship. Thank God we don't have to get a bull up here and, and slit his throat in front of everyone. But back then, they had to do that. That was the way that their sin was covered and they were able to then have fellowship and relationship with God. And the high priest was the one who had the most responsibility in those things. And so... When we see now as Jesus, as the high priest, the idea from scripture that we have is that Jesus took the place of the high priest. So back then, when they had Aaron as the first high priest, eventually, guess what? Aaron died. And so then they had to have another one and then have another. Think about like how, uh, you know, if you guys know about the Supreme Court justice who just died. Right now, there's someone else that is going to fill her place because she died. Well, back then, uh, within this position, it was similar. You had that office until you were dead or couldn't fulfill it anymore. And so then they would bring the next one and then the next one and then the next one. But you see, Jesus is now our, as Christians, he is our high priest. He is the one that stands in the gap between us and between God. He is the one that you and I go to to be able to worship God. And rather than offering animals, right? That's what the high priest would do back then. He would offer animals so that people could have a relationship with God. Well, now Jesus has offered himself as the sacrifice and yet he is still the high priest. And what's different with him, why he is so great beyond any high priest that has ever come is because back then, high priest would eventually die. Well, guess what? Jesus, yes, he died, but he rose again, never to die again. And so you and I, we have our high priest, but he is not here. He is in heaven. And thank God he is in heaven because he advocates on our behalf before the father. And so Hebrews says this, you can note it down. Hebrews seven describes Jesus as our high priest and puts it this way, but he, because he continues forever, right? Once he rose again, he ain't never dying again, has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost 
those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for him. So the picture that you and I have is that Jesus is in heaven and he intercedes on our our behalf, meaning he is that bridge between us and between God. And he in heaven right now is praying for you. You're like, how does God pray to God? You see, within the, the amazing thing that we know as the Trinity or the Godhead, he has set this up where Jesus is petitioning and saying, this is what we need to do for this person or this person. I'm hearing their prayers and he is praying for us. I know kind of a trip, but it's awesome. You know, we have a great example of Jesus praying for his disciples even before John 17. When Jesus warns Peter of his denial in Luke chapter 22, you can note it down, Luke 22, verse 31 and 32, right? Peter was going to deny Christ, but Peter was warned even beforehand. And this is what Jesus had to say about Peter. He said, Simon, Simon, Peter, Peter, indeed, Satan has asked for you. That's terrifying. That he may sift you as wheat. It means to really take, you know, try to knock him down. But notice, notice the words in red, but I have prayed for you. You know, I don't really think, prior to looking at this verse the other day, my mind doesn't naturally go towards when Jesus would sneak off. Do you remember in the Gospels when he would sneak off and he'd begin praying? And the disciples were like, where'd Jesus go? And they have to go find him. Well, I think in those moments, one of the things that he was praying for was for his disciples by name. And praying for Peter, saying, and what did, well, what did he pray? Well, look, it says, but I have prayed for you. What did he pray? That your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brother. You see, Jesus prayed for Peter in the midst of what he knew would be a low point, but he prayed that his faith should not ultimately fail. He prayed for Peter's return before he even left. He prayed that God would use Peter to strengthen the other disciples when he would come back. That's an amazing thing. I think those are similar prayers Jesus prays for us now. Of, of Lord, would you strengthen their faith? That I know they're going through a low point and they're going to deny you, but when they come back, would you use the testimony of their life and what you're doing in them? And so now we come to John 17. We understand hopefully a little bit more what it means that he is our high priest. He is in the heavens on our behalf, okay? So this is kind of the chapter breakdown. We're not gonna look at all the verses, but I wanna give you at least the breakdown uh, for your own note-taking. So within the first five verses, Jesus prays for himself. Did you know it is an okay thing to pray for yourself? It is. It's not, a, it's not a selfish thing as long as your prayers aren't selfish. And for sure, the prayers of Jesus here by nature are not selfish. The next part we see in verses 6 through 19, Jesus begins praying for his 12 disciples. So those specifically who were with him, who's been following him, specifically them. And then the last part from verses 20 to 26, we see Jesus' prayer for all future disciples, which includes you and me. To think, I, I believe that Jesus, while praying this prayer, had you and me specifically on his mind. He was thinking of us way before we were even born. And so this is important as we begin to look at this. I do want to read verses one through five, and we'll talk through it a little bit. And so 
Look in your Bibles, and we're going to look at how Jesus prays for himself quickly. All right? You guys still open to John 17? All right. Look at verse 1 with me. He says, Jesus spoke these words and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son also may glorify you as you have given him authority over all flesh that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life that they may know you and the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. So within this first part of this prayer, we see pretty clearly that he says, look at verse one. He says, my hour has come. He says, Father, it has finally come to that point to fulfill the reason of why I came. Do you guys remember Jesus saying this over and over again about how his hour was not yet? It started at a wedding that you see in John chapter two, I believe, where before Jesus began doing miracles, this was his first miracle. And they're at a wedding and he's with his, some of his disciples and his mom comes up to him and says, hey, they're out of wine. Can you do something about it? And Jesus says, woman, not in a disrespectful way, But he says, woman, he says, my hour has not yet come. Meaning it was not yet that he would reveal himself in in that way. And over and over again, eventually he, you know the story, he turned the water into wine. And then over and over again throughout the gospels that people would want different things, they would begin to try to worship him. And he said, my hour was not yet, but now there's a change. There's a difference. And in verse one, he says, my hour is here. And does anyone know what that hour meant? What, what was the reason why Jesus came? Yeah. Yeah, think about it. Jesus was born not to live, but to die. The, the, the purpose of Jesus' life, why he was born into this world, was to die. And, and this, remember, this is that night before. He's about to be taken, and he knows that it is here And so his hour has come that this is the the reason he's been living. Think about it. It it was 33 years later once he was born. And he knew every year that that cross was coming, that that hour is going to come where he had to sacrifice himself. And he had the choice to offer himself up as this sacrifice. And ultimately, this would be the path to which he would glorify God. That's why over and over again, if you look in those verses, he says, Father, glorify me. It's the idea that that through what Jesus did on the cross, it glorified him. It glorified his father. It would be the path that that he would face shame and humiliation, but, but once over, he would be exalted to the right hand of the throne of God and would experience that glory once again. And so he says, he says, I fulfilled this work. He says, it is done. He says, I am I am there. This is the hour. And that's what he prays. You know, he knew this even going into the upper room before he sat down for that last supper. In John 12, he tells the disciples, he says, but Jesus answered them saying, the hour has come that the son of man should be glorified. They're like, what do you, how is he gonna be glorified when he's dead on a cross? It looks like a, 
It looks like a loss, but it's really a victory. He says, most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. Meaning the way to Jesus's ultimate glory was going to be through the cross. It was going to be death. And he uses the illustration of a seed. You see, if you, if you have a seed and, you, and, it, and it doesn't die, then it doesn't produce anything. You guys realize that when a, when a seed is planted, it, it has to die in order for it to bring life. That that seed dies and from that death comes life. It's a beautiful picture of the gospel. It's a beautiful picture of the cross that, that God in, instilled into creation even before time began. And so that's Jesus' prayer for himself. The next thing, and for the rest of the chapter, Jesus really specifically hunkers down and he prays over the 12 disciples and he prays over you and me as future disciples. You see, Jesus had revealed God to his disciples. He opened their eyes to who God was. He talked about the kingdom, talked about the kingdom of heaven. He had given them God's word. And the Bible says that they believed it, that they received it. But now Jesus, in this parting prayer, he prays for them to God the Father, and he has three requests. And that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to look at his three requests. And as I go through this, I want you to keep in mind that, that this prayer is still one that remains for you and I today. That Jesus is at the right hand of the Father and even now desires these three things that I want to share with you today that he prayed over the disciples and over uh, even you and I, all right? Number one, that God the Father would keep them. All right, I want you to write that down, would keep them. And you can put next to it verses 11, 12, and 15, 11, 12, and 15. One of his requests for the disciples is that God would keep them. Look at verse 11 in your Bibles in verse 12, and then we'll jump down to verse 15. He says, now I am no longer in the world, meaning he was leaving, but these are in the world. And I come to you, Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me, I have kept and none of them is lost except the son of perdition or destruction, which is Judas, that the scripture might be fulfilled. And then look at verse 15. He uses that same word, keep. He says, I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. And so you can note down under this first point that there's a total of three times that Jesus says and, and requests to keep them that he wants God to keep them. But what, what does this mean? He says he wants to, God to keep them through his name. He wants God to keep them from the evil one. This word keep, you can note it down. It means to guard. It means to watch over. It means to maintain. Like if your mom gave you the keys and you are to keep them safe. Right? It's the idea that you are to watch over them and, and guard them. In a similar fashion, this was Paul's desire and prayer for the Thessalonians. Oh, there we go. Uh, he says here, and it, do you see the word preserve before we read it? That is the same word as keep, okay? Note it down. He says, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. 
And may your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved or kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful will also do it. That same word preserved is the same word to keep. Kind of like, have you guys ever been to Washington, D.C.? Anyone? Some of you guys? Do you guys ever see the Declaration of Independence? Obviously, uh, they don't have that out in the open, right? You can't just like touch the Declaration of Independence. No, they have it preserved. They have certain chemicals on it. They have it in this crazy box uh, that you, you, know, you probably couldn't even get through with a bazooka. I mean, this thing's like nuts, and it is secured. The, the lighting in there is very specific. It's because they want to keep that document for future uh, generations. They want to keep and preserve that document for years to come. Same kind of idea. Or have you guys ever been to, uh, you know when the, the King Tut thing is in town, kind of in LA, you can go and see the, the mummies and different things like that? Well, that's the same kind of deal, right? The, these bodies with certain chemicals and certain fluids and how they prepared the body and what they did to the body and how they kept it, they have preserved it for years. Disgusting, for sure. But nonetheless, they have preserved it. They have kept it. Does that make sense? That is the picture that we have here from the word keep. And this was his prayer. He says, even here in 1 Thessalonians, Paul says, I, I pray that your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless. Notice it says preserved, not perfect. You see, for God to keep you, it doesn't mean make them have a perfect life, but it means to be able to be kept, to be persevered. And, and this even specifically says blameless or without fault or guilt. Notice Whose job this is? This is God's job to keep you. Notice right here. I mean, it says that God is faithful. He who calls you is faithful who will also do it. There is a great balance of understanding in this, meaning your ability to be kept by God or preserved in this world doesn't, doesn't fall on your own ability. It falls on, on God. However, there's a balance. You see, we are to, the Bible says, even keep ourselves in the love of God. And there's this great balance in scripture where there's God's duty, but man's response. And so we, even though, okay, this is on God, you see, if we try to keep ourselves without God in the picture, uh, it's worthless. We're not going to get very far. Our efforts are worthless. Philippians Chapter 2, verse 12 and 13, gives this great balance of your duty um, and, and God's responsibility. It says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Notice it says, work out, not work for. I mean, you're supposed to work it out, how, how it looks for you in your life. You're to do it in a reverential way, but each person's walk is going to look different. But he says, it is God who works in you both to will, meaning to even have the desire, and to do for his good pleasure. But there's a balance. James chapter 1 says that we are to keep ourselves unspotted from the world. It doesn't mean it's like, all right, well, God, everything's on you. I'll just sit back and do whatever I want. And it doesn't mean we can blame God when we sin. It's not what I'm saying. But there's this great balance where as we pursue God, God is able to keep us. Jude 24 
reminds us that this is God's work in our lives. He says, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with, the, with exceeding joy. You see, God is not going to give up on you. He is going to see you all the way through to your life. There's not going to be a moment where God says, ah, you're getting on my nerves, kid. It's not, it's not going to be like that. It's not going to be like, ah, you know, you sin too much. I'm, I'm over it. I'll, I'll see you later. No, it's not like that. You see, God finishes what he starts. Philippians 1, 6, Paul says that he was confident of this very thing, that he who had begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ. God will see you through. And without, now, now there's, you got to keep yourself close to Jesus. We even read in John 15, a handful of weeks ago, where we're to abide in Christ. But God says, if you abide in me, I'll, I got you. I'll keep you. You know, Hebrews 12 says that he is the author and finisher of our faith, meaning he sees us through to the end. Now, this idea of, of God keeping us from evil, right? Because he says there in verse 15, look in your Bibles. He says, he says God, I don't pray that you take them out of the world. Because imagine if God did that. Imagine if when Jesus went to heaven, the 12 disciples went with him. Guess who wouldn't be sitting here? You and me. And so Jesus says, I don't want you to take them out of the world, meaning you're going to experience that tribulation like last week that we looked at. But I pray that as they're in the world, that you would keep them from evil and the evil one. Do you remember even in the model prayer, Matthew chapter 6, Jesus said one of the things that the disciples are to pray is to pray to God, deliver us from the evil one. You see, he taught us to deliver us to, to pray. He taught them to pray to God to ask for deliverance. And now he prays this over them. I want you to notice one more thing and then we'll move to our next point. If you look back at verse 11, he says, he says, I want you to keep them by your name or, or in your name. What does he say exactly? He says, keep through your name those whom you have given me. That's pretty cool. Keep through your name. You see, when we talk about the name of God, like, do you remember when we were singing that, that song, you know, uh, you know, your name? Uh, I can't think of the words. Someone give me something. Yeah, exactly. You guys got it. Your name. When we speak of God's name, it's not just a name. It's everything that goes along with the name. When we speak of the Lord, when we speak of Jesus, what is attached to the Lord's name is who he is. It is the God who we worship as an all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present, loving, holy, kind, and good God. And so when Jesus says, through your name, it means through who you are, keep them. You know, Proverbs gives us this idea. Proverbs 18.10 says, the name of the Lord is a strong tower, and the righteous run to it and are safe. It means secure. That is the name, it is by the name of the Lord. It is the name of Jesus that gives us that protection. Now, does that mean your life is going to be perfect? Nope. That's why he said, I don't, I don't ask that you take them out of the world. I just pray that as much as possible, as what you're doing, that you would keep them from evil. Does that mean you're going to encounter evil? Yep, for sure. But God's going to see you through. You will not experience something that God says, I'm not going to be there in it with you. 
He says, I'm going to see you through. I'm going to keep you. I'm going to preserve you to the end. God is able to present us faultless before his throne. It's a wild, wild concept. And so he, he prays. He, he asks God to keep them. And the second thing you can note down is he asks to sanctify them, which is a total Bible word. Everyone say sanctify. sanctify. All right, say it with a little more pizzazz, all right? Sanctify. Look at verse 17 in your Bibles. Verse 17 gives us point number two here of his request. He says, uh, here he says, sanctify. I'm sure he didn't say it like that, especially because he said it in Greek. But sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. This word sanctify, you can note it down. It means to be set apart and dedicated for God's use. It's kind of like the idea of how your dad has tools in his garage and they are set apart and dedicated for his use and usually not yours, right? Behind each tool is a specific use that you're not to go in there and, and, and play around with his drill gun and trying to chase around your sister, right? that they're for a specific purpose. Or maybe your mom has some fancy dishes or silverware that she only pulls out for Christmas dinner or Thanksgiving dinner. You see those dishes, like if you were like, I wanna eat a Pop-Tart, you're not gonna get out one of those dishes, right? I'm gonna make some grilled cheese, I'm gonna use one of these knives to cut it and it's like you know, actual silver from like grandma so-and-so, right? They are dedicated for a specific purpose. They are set apart. You see, that is this word, sanctified. Jesus' desire for the disciples is that God would set them apart, that God would use them, that they wouldn't look like the world, because then they're just like anyone else. You see, Jesus wanted his disciples to be different, because the goal for the disciples was to reach the world. And when you are like the world, you're not going to be able to reach the world. And the disciples, no doubt, were successful in this. They turned the world upside down the Bible tells us. You see, the Bible describes that as followers of Jesus, we are in a process of sanctification, of being set apart, meaning you are not as you should be. You are saved, maybe, if you have trusted in the name of Jesus and what he's done, and you are justified, the Bible says, meaning you're made right with God. You are, God now looks at you just as if you've never sinned, but guess what? You still sin. But as far as the punishment's taken away, but the process of God's work in your life is still being there today, right? Don't you guys experience that? Sometimes you're like, God, can you, I need a little more, right? I need you to help me speed up this process because maybe you sense some immaturity spiritually. I know I do at times. I'm like, Okay, God, let's keep, let's keep going. And you and I are to pursue sanctification in our life. You see, with the word sanctification, it's a concept of holiness. You see, the word sanctify is a common theme within the inner workings of temple worship in the Old Testament. Remember we talked about the temple a little bit ago and the high priest? Well, back then, there were different things that they used in the temple. Different altars, different... Uh, uh, things with candlesticks and a variety of things. And those items that they use, the Bible says that they had to be sanctified. 
it means that they had to be set apart. They had to be pure and holy. Meaning like, for example, they had a big lampstand in the temple, right? And with these different candles that represented different things. And the Bible says that those, those lamps, those candles were always to be lit. Now, for someone back then, if they're like, dang, you know, my electricity came off, except there is no electricity. They, you know, and they're like, oh, I ran out of candles. You know, they're not to go into the temple, take the lampstand and bring it back to their house. I'm like, oh, this is, be- this is better. Why? Because that lampstand had a specific purpose. It was dedicated. And that is this word, sanctified. Dedicated for a very specific purpose, and that is to live a life for Jesus. You see, same with us. Jesus desires our life to be holy and pure before him, not just for any use. God doesn't just want you to do anything in life. He has purpose for you, and it is kingdom-minded purpose. It is to build his kingdom. It is to encourage. It is to tell people about the gospel. You know, that same verse that we looked at, do you remember when we looked at the word preserved? Well, it's cool. I love how the Bible ties together. That same word sanctify is also in this verse. When he says, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you, set you apart completely, fully. And then he says, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice, he who calls you, I mean, he's calling you to do it. You have a part in your own sanctification and holiness, but he is faithful who will do it. You see, if you, for in your relationship with God, as you continue to grow with him, there should be things that change. You as a Christian should be an ever-changing person. And as you get closer to Jesus, there are things of the world that should burn away and you become more pure. You become more holy before him. And then God is able to use you in a greater way because you are more set apart. And it's an awesome thing that there should be growth in this area of holiness, that we should look more like Jesus today than we did yesterday, than we did last week, last month, last year. But notice that it is God doing the sanctification. So what is our part? Well, we stay close to Jesus and he's able to do this work in our life to wash us and cleanse us and make us more like him. Talking about being used by God, uh, Paul says this, you can note it down. You guys good today? Tracking? You guys seem like you're just listening very intently. I hope that's true. Hopefully you're not falling asleep. 2 Timothy 2, 21 says, Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter sin, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified and useful for the master prepared for every good work. You see, if your life is dirty, full of sin, God is going to be hindered in using you. He wants to. He wants to use your life to impact other people's life. That is the main thing of how God wants to use you in this life. You're like, I'm not a people person. Well, if you're a Christian, you better start being a people person because that is the one purpose that God has in your life is to influence the lives of other people for the kingdom. That, that includes a, a wide variety of things. But if your life is dirty and full of sin and, you're, and you are just living your life without God, then he's not gonna be able to use you. It's like you, when you go into the drawer at home, and you see a dirty spoon that didn't get washed very good and it has last night's spaghetti on it, you ain't gonna use that for your cereal, right? 
You're going to put that back in the dishwasher and get one that is clean. And so this is what God does. He has his purposes. He has his plans. He invites you to be used by him. But he says, I will pass over you and I will use someone else. And that's a shame. I don't want to get to heaven and have God tell me I had to use someone else for the job and the purpose and plans I wanted you. I don't want him to pass over me. I want my life to be dedicated, set apart, so that when opportunities arise, I can be used by God. Make sense? It's a sweet thing. The third prayer that he had for them was this, was to unify them, they may, that they may be one as we are. Look at verse 11. At the end of it, right, he says, keep through your name those whom you have given me. What's the purpose? That they may be one as we are. And then look again at verse 20. Look at verse 20. He says, I do not pray for these alone, meaning just the disciples. You guys looking? 20. But also for those who will believe, that's you and me, in me through their word, that they may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me, I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one. As you can see, this is a big theme. One oneness, one. He wants unity. You see, God desires first and foremost, a personal and close unifying relationship with you. He doesn't want anything to come in between you and your relationship with him. That's why the Bible describes him as a jealous God. Meaning when you start to put something above God in your life, maybe you would never say it, but you start giving way more time to something and it begins to become an idol in your life. God says, I'm jealous of that. God says, I want this unity of relationship with you. But the other thing here is that Jesus' prayer was that the disciples would be in unity, that there'd be a closeness of relationship with one another, that there'd be nothing in between, that there'd be no division. And doesn't this make sense? Think about what a parent would want for their kids once they die. I know you're like, oh my God, why am I thinking about that? Think about it. Think about if you have siblings, what would be your, one, your, your parents' one desire if they were on their way out of this world? They would want you to be together. They wouldn't want money to divide you. They wouldn't want anything to come in between. Unfortunately, oftentimes death is actually very separating things because people get greedy. But you see, Jesus is leaving and he says, I'm leaving, but you guys got to stick together. You guys have to be with one another because the world will be against you. I remember my wife telling me what uh, she has a brother, a younger brother named Zach. And she always told me that her parents would, would tell them as they grew up and as they were young, you know, when they start fighting or whatever and getting, you know, not getting along, they would make sure to always tell them, when we leave, when we're gone out of this world, even then as a kid, they would instill it into them, you guys will only have each other. The, the one family that you will for sure have is one another. That's a, that's a good word for us. You see, this is what Jesus desires. Now, but this unity, it doesn't mean conformity. Do you know what the word conformity means? It means to have everything the same. Like if you go to like new track houses that they're building, every house is exactly the same. 
It's a lot different than if you go to Chino and there's like different farmhouses and different houses that look different. Or like an apartment, right? Like almost every apartment looks exactly the same. That's what conformity is or uniformity. It means that everything is the same. You see, that's not how God works. He wants unity, but he wants there to be differences. That's why in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 4 and 6, he says, There are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are differences of ministries, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of activities. Different people do different things. But it's the same God who works all in all. But he just doesn't want there to be fighting. You see, sometimes you and I, uh, we can get so wrapped up with our church. And you might, this might not be you yet, but as you grow and as you continue here, you can be so excited for your church, which is awesome, but then you start to look down on other people who do it differently. But yet differences are designed by God. They are. It is good that there are different churches. It is a good thing that they do things differently. As long as it's not uh, sin, then it's d- designed by God. But, but something that can set in is pride. It can cause us to look down upon others who do it differently. Not, not, not sinful, just, just different. This is by God's design. And so we ought to be seeking for unity. But these were the prayers, all right? These were uh, the, the requests of Jesus. But I want you to think about this for a moment as we close. We're gonna, you can even close your Bibles. Actually, you'll, you'll need to open them again, so um, maybe not. Uh, but to a different passage as we close. But you see, Jesus didn't pray. Notice what Jesus did not pray. He didn't pray that they'd have a really big following. He didn't pray that they'd have a really nice car. He didn't pray that they would become famous. He didn't pray that they would have a really nice boat or a really big house. He prayed for something far greater. That no matter what they went through, that God would keep them from evil, that God would separate them from the world from the world to be able to use for his service, that they'd be unified together, and ultimately that they would be brought home to heaven. You see, he prayed for their souls to prosper. He knew what they would face, and without God's daily involvement in their lives, they would fail. You see, Jesus has been praying for, everyone look at me, Jesus has been praying for you longer than you've been alive. Longer than you've been alive. No one's 2,000 years old here, right? He's been praying for you for a very long time, and this work, I believe, continues today. And so I want to close with the passage. You can put your notes away for the most part, but I want you to turn to Hebrews, okay? Anyone know where Hebrews is in the Bible? It's toward, yeah, true, before James, towards the Old Testament, or sorry, towards the end of the book, Old Testament. It's in the New Testament. If you, yeah, if you hit Revelation, you went too far. If you hit 1 John, you went too far. If you're at the T's, you're just, you're very close, you're almost there. After Philemon, exactly. Hebrews. What would be uh, the coffee shop that Jesus would name? Hebrews. Hebrews. Get it? Yeah. yeah, oh my God. Yeah, some of you guys are a little late on that one. All right. Hebrews chapter 2. I want you guys to really look at this. It's not going to be up on the screen, it's going to be in your Bible. So I want you to look. As we close, because remember, this. This prayer is the high priestly prayer of Jesus. And so 
Hebrews has a great commentary talking about what it means that Jesus is our high priest. As we close, he says this in verse 17 and 18 in chapter 2. He says, therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren. Right? Jesus was made like us. He was made human. That he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he had himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are being tempted. Look at this. This is awesome. That Jesus, who is our high priest, meaning he is the way to God, he says, I know what you're going through. He says, there is no area that you've been tempted that I have not been tempted, yet I know how to get through it. Right? I have overcome the world. And look again at Hebrews chapter 4. Just uh, should be a page over or so. Hebrews 4, starting in verse 14. He says, seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, right? He ascended to heaven. Jesus, the son of God, he says, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with us, with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. You know, sometimes I think we have a a wrong perspective on who God is in our lives. He is for you. You guys hear me? Everyone look at me. He sees you. He knows the deepest things of your heart. He sees it. He knows you more than you know yourself. He knows you more than mom knows you. You're like, mom doesn't know me. Yeah, she knows you, but God knows you more. The Bible describes in Psalm 139 that he knows when you wake up. He knows when you lie down. He knows your thought afar off. Before you think it, God says, I know it. And it's not in a way that's that's creepy. It's in a way that's caring. It's that he, the God of the universe, who runs this whole thing, who the Bible says that he holds it all together, knows the deep things of you. And he wants a personal relationship. His desire is to be with you. You see, this prayer is very relational. It's about God's relationship with man. And it's because our God is a relational God. So when you guys pray and you talk to him, know that he's for you. Sometimes we think of prayer as like, almost like we have to like convince God of doing something. No, you just talk to him. He knows you and he just wants to keep you. He wants to keep you unified with others. He wants to continue that work in your life because he wants to use you. You are here for a reason. God hasn't seen fit to take you home. Jesus has not returned and so there's more for you. So may we press on today, amen? Lord, we love you and wow, you're faithful, you're good. And Lord, it just almost... Lord, it gives me goosebumps thinking about this prayer and thinking about that those so many years ago that as you prayed these words and were intentional with every one, that you thought of me, you thought of us. And Lord, that you still care. You're not done. Lord, you have more for us. And I pray that as, as us, as a, as, a, as a church, as a junior high ministry, Lord, that as we pursue you, 
that you would sanctify us, Lord, that, that the things of the world, even now, Lord, by your word, by your spirit, would you wash us clean? We pray that you would revive us according to your word, according to your loving kindness. Lord, that you would refresh us by your spirit, that as we go back to our lives, as we've been able to pause and study your word, may we pursue you. Lord, may we not let one day go past that we waste or we desire to be your hands and your feet, your instrument, because we know for this reason you've created us is to be with you and to enjoy you forever. And we know if we're still here, you want to use us. We love you and pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys can stand and let's, let's worship our great God.